you're totally as a child's parent in your right to have a different parenting style than the person with you know 100,000 followers doesn't mean that their parenting style is any better or worse than yours and um, it's knowing that we're all different and if something works for you then it works for your child and it works for everyone that matters hello you're very welcome to the Parentline podcast I'm your host, Kerry McLean. I'm a broadcaster, a Parentline ambassador, and I'm a mum of three. And this is the podcast where we talk all things parenting, both the joys and the challenges along the way, wherever you are on your parenting journey. Now, one subject that I think if you asked any parent or any carer of small children to talk about, you know, the kind of things that they really think are a bit of a challenge. Well, in the top five, you would always get the subject that we're going to have an adder about today, sleep, or rather the lack of it. I'm delighted to say my guest today has got loads of answers for all of your sleep questions and hopefully mine as well. Uh, She joins us now. It's lovely to have you with us today. This is Susan from Settled Petals and you are, how would you describe your job title, Susan? I would describe myself as an infant sleep consultant. I specialize in the sleep of children around the age of four and under, um, as well as specializing in potty training, infant massage and baby yoga. Well, I'm just so envious of your job getting to work with wee tiny babies all the time would be my dream come true. I would love to do that. But sleep, this is something I think, I mean, I've never met a parent who hasn't had sleep issues with their child. And whenever we say sleep issues with their child, it's not just the child because this is something that really does affect the entire family, doesn't it? Absolutely. Um, I always view my role as supporting a family as a unit. because the baby doesn't tend to be awake in the night by themselves. Um, So siblings, parents, um, every member of the house um, is impacted by um, sleep deprivation. And so what do you do then? Like, where's the first place to start? If you have a small child, where would you start? Like, does it matter, for instance, what age they are? Absolutely. Um, I divide my services into three groups, um, which represent the different developmental requirements of sleep. So um, I call newborns under 16 weeks, as there is a lot of sleep development that happens around four months. Then I call the next group babies. Um, So from four months up to about 18 months or thereabouts, um, basically babies who are still nonverbal. And then I talk about toddlers and little younger children. So they would usually be 19, 20 months up to age three or four. And I would really um, change my services depending on which of those three groups um, a family presented me with um, a request for support for. And what kind of changes then would you have amongst those groups? Like, you know, what are the issues that people are coming to to you with at those particular ages? So for newborns, um, I call it newborn settling rather than newborn sleep um, because obviously there's no um, suggestion that we're trying to have a newborn, you know, sleep seven to seven. That's not developmentally appropriate. Um, But what a lot of parents would come to me for is saying, you know, it's taking us four hours in an evening to have a baby settled and we just don't know what to do. They're waking in the night and we're feeding them. We're changing their nappy but it's taking four hours for them to get back. Um, and the baby is very upset during that time. And those younger babies were really looking at how we help them transition from this cozy, dark womb to this loud, um, colorful world. 
um, which can be a big transition. So I would call that settling. So helping with naps, helping prevent children getting overtired. Um, I think it's important to recognize we actually can't make another human sleep. Well, you know, um, unless you're an atheist or something like that, but that's not our rule. Our rule as parents is to help the environment and um, to make that as easy for a child as we can. And um, within the baby age, um, there would be frequent night wakings and um, babies who find it difficult to nap and babies who take a long time in the evening to settle. Um, and with toddlers, there's two main ones with toddlers, long bedtimes and early morning. So the night being cut short in either, um, there would be a wee bit of night wakening. But for the toddler grip, it would be um, normal things that would happen developmentally. Children may be challenging bedtime finding it difficult to stay in their new bed and waking up at half four in the morning thinking it's time to wake the whole house. Um, So those would be the the main areas um, dependent on the age of the child. I'm smiling here and it's not because I think those problems aren't really serious. They are. I'm smiling in recognition to each and every single one of them. I have three kids and I think I was doing tick, tick, tick to each and every one of those problems as you went through them. Uh, Starting off, in infancy, whenever you first bring a child home and you're really trying to figure out, should I be setting up a routine? Should I not? Because there's so many different bits of advice out there. You know, some people, some books that I read were saying, oh, let the child follow their own routine. Just you follow them. And then other people saying, no, you need to to get that sort of set now about following the clock and what you're doing at particular times. What would you say? I say it very much depends on the family. So we have to, when we're talking about infant sleep, we cannot ignore parenting values and parenting views and what works for a parent. If something works for a parent, then it works for everyone who matters. So we have to recognize our own personality. I love routine. I am a list person. I love to laminate things. I love organization. And so for me, um, you know, I like to have a routine, but there's other people out there who a routine would feel very stressful, very claustrophobic and would nearly have the same feeling of anxiety that having no routine would have for me. So there is absolutely no right or wrong. Um, you never need sleep support if something works for your family unit. I think there's a, there's maybe information overload for families at the moment. I spoke to a lot of families recently who are saying, you know, I'm on X amount of sleep consultants um, Instagrams. I'm reading X amount of books. They're all telling me different things. And you have to think, well, actually, a lot of those sleep consultants parenting values are coming across and people are thinking that's what you must do. And we also have to take in the little newborn. So um, our 24 hour um, daily cycle, if you like, um, doesn't develop immediately. So we are driven by hormones and by day and light. And the sleep hormone melatonin doesn't actually start being produced by newborns till they're about eight weeks old. And it's not into an, um, a 24 hour rhythm till about 12 to 16 hours old. So during the, that time, there is absolutely no point in saying, I'm going to have my baby nap at eight o'clock, 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock every day, because the body can't replicate that on a 24 hour basis. It simply doesn't have the hormonal drive to be able to do that. What you can do if you're a schedule lover is say, okay, I'm going to have it that every 
hour and a half, I'm going to try my baby for a nap. Um, I'm going to have the feed first or I'm going to have the feed after, depending on your parenting style. Um, I'm going to have a five minute bedtime routine so my baby starts learning the cues of sleep. So that would be the sort of schedule you'd be looking for with those little new babies coming home. Um, some families may choose, actually, they're just going with the flow and that works perfectly well. There's other families, I think it's when what they were kind of wanting or what works for their family isn't really going to plan um, where I come in and I'm able to support that. But it very much, I always ask a parent, what are you hoping to get out of the service? Um, and that's what drives me. So some people say, I want a basic routine. Um, other people say, I don't mind um, if there's a basic routine. I just don't want there to be three hours of crying in the evening. So neither of those approaches are right or wrong. It's just what works for a particular family. It is, whenever you said about the pressure that's put on parents from looking at Instagram and things, you know, I totally and absolutely agree with that. I didn't have that pressure with my first two because they're now teenagers, but my last child is is now five years old. And I was, you know, lying with her at night while she was still sort of flailing about and moving around. And I was sort of flicking through social media and I would see all these people saying, oh yes, I just, you know, rubbed their back and they went to sleep in two seconds or, you know, stroke their nose or do this particular thing. And I was lying there thinking, I've done all of this. None of this works. Absolutely. And that works both ways. So people can feel very passionately about parenting styles and we all have slightly different parenting styles and it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. Um, and I think when you go on Instagram, people are only showing a very small glimpse of their world. So we have both professionals on that and families. Um, and I think it's very difficult for um, parents to see what people are presenting as perfection. And having perfection as norm, which absolutely does not exist. Um, I have a little nine month old baby myself and I will see people's Instagrams with these beautifully clean living rooms and kitchens. And you're thinking, how are they all dressed <laughs> at this time of the, of the day? So you've, you've got that, that coming from parents and then you've also got professionals with very different parenting views. Um, and I think it's really important to recognize actually. It's not reality. It's little glimpses um, of people's um, lives or people's opinions. And you're totally, um, as a child's parent, in your right to have a different parenting style than the person with, you know, 100,000 followers doesn't mean that their parenting style is any better or worse than yours. Um, it's knowing that we're all different. And if something works for you, then it works for your child and it works for everyone that matters. One thing that I know that I always struggled with whenever my kids were all very small, before that verbal stage, before I could ask them, you know, how do you feel or whatever, I found it really hard to tell when they were ready for bed. I had um, one girl who who was easier to tell, you know, she did all this kind of, you know, rubbing her eyes, all those kind of really visual things. My son totally threw me because he went, actually, he looked like he had more energy than ever whenever he was tired. How do you start to learn those cues, especially at the stage when they can't tell you? Absolutely. So um, with newborn babies, it's actually a bit easier than with older babies because they give us little non-verbal cues before they get overtired. Crying is actually a late cue when you've, you've got crying. They're probably overtired. So in those little newborn days, um, little tiny things like their eyes glancing away from you. So if you've been making eye contact, they start looking away. That's a sign they're getting quite tired. And um, sometimes things like hiccups and um, 
obviously little ones like yawning, perhaps if they are feeding, whether it's bottle or breast, you start noticing that that little suck just becomes a little bit less powerful than it was. Those would all be really good signs to be trying for an app. And with older children, um, you mentioned a little bit about having more energy. So when a child becomes overtired, what we would imagine is that they would suddenly nearly conk out to sleep. Um, and the opposite is true. So it goes back to our ancestors. And when we become overtired, the body thinks, oh, I wonder if there's something in this environment that this person has to stay awake for. So, you know, it might have been, you know, there's another tribe approaching, there's a wild animal, there's something in the environment that's just not quite right. And so it thinks, oh, maybe they're awake because there's something going on and it would be not the safest time to sleep. So it sends um, a little message to promote adrenaline and cortisol. So cortisol is the wake hormone, adrenaline gives us a bit more energy. Um, and both of those are a bit like Red Bull <laughs> stimulation for children. So there's a phrase, if you're tired, you're wired. So sometimes when children become overtired, they actually almost go into hyper style mode. So sometimes I'd work with a family in bedtime's very late, say 10 o'clock. And I'd say, I think we need to bring bedtime forward. I think we're missing some of the sleep drive. And they'll say, no, I really don't think so. Because from nine o'clock to 10, we've never seen them with more energy. And actually that's a child being overtired but it's not very obvious to us because as adults when we're overtired we tend to start um, going down so what I would use quite a lot um, is wake times and um, so for newborns everyone's a little bit different we're all individual but tends to be I start around the 50 minute one hour mark for a newborn baby at about five minutes a week so by about 12 weeks and um, most children can only really go an hour and a half so if they're showing me cues at one hour 20 you know I'm not so rigid on it but if there's no cues by an hour 20 I start thinking hmm I'm wondering is it worth us trying a little nap here with nothing to use um, and using both um wake times and child's cues. Same with older children. Um, older children after about 16 weeks, the body responds really well to routine. So it likes to know what hormones it's about to produce, whether it's food or sleep. Um, so I would be trying to get a child onto a bit more of a pattern if it works for a family and if they're finding whatever they're doing is not working for them. And it'll make life a little bit easier because the cues start becoming more predictable. Where some, as you'd mentioned, you know, you start knowing their behavior starts just, especially in the toddler years, you start noticing, oh, they're finding life a little bit harder than they should. Maybe, um, you know, this, the sleep deprivation is coming in and it can be more obvious that rubbing the eyes and yawning. Um, but once you get to crying, tends to be we've already kind of lost our little moment, but that's fine. At the end of the day, you, you do what you can and the next day is a new, a new time to start. Can I ask you about naps? Because that's one of those things that I think people get really anxious about. Because it's you worry about where you should be giving your child a nap. Should it always be the same location? Should it always be in bed? I mean, I have to confess that mine quite often were put in the car to drive about to get a wee bit of a nap so that I could lie and sleep in the front seat beside them. But how does it matter where they're having that nap or does it just matter that they get that that sleep? Well, there's two things. One, we want it to be safe sleep. So um, safe sleep guidelines would say a baby sleeping in a car is fine. But um, once that they are, um, you stopped. Um, then we, we should lift them out. Um, if they're in a buggy, for example, the buggy should be put down flat and approved for sleep. So um, some, you know, the little Moses basket style 
prams that you have for maybe those baby babies. And um, some of them have got little breathable mattresses, which are ideal. And um, babies do find it easier if they have the same sleep environment as often as possible. A bit like if, you know, if you've ever been, I don't know if you ever went backpacking or anything like that and you were in a different hostel every night or, or you might have been on someone's sofa or sleeping on a plane or sleeping on a train and um, the body finds that a wee bit harder to get into a routine than if you're in the same environment every time. But that doesn't mean we can't bring the environment to where the child is. So it's not always feasible um, for families to be at home sleeping in a cot because I always say sleep is about, I try to promote sleep for families to give them a good quality of life. Life is not all about sleep. So we don't want it to be that people are afraid to go to the zoo or the farm because it's going to clash with nap time. We want it to be that your child's well rested so they can go and have a brilliant time at those places because memories are actually more important. I don't think anyone looks back and thinks, wasn't that a brilliant nap on, you know, whatever date that it is. Um, but they will remember if their child was overtired when they were doing those. So you can bring the environment to you. So I would be a big fan of darkness for naps because it promotes melatonin, the sleepy hormone. And I'm also a big fan of white noise. And um, I just because I'm a fan of white noise, if any parents are listening, if your children don't like it, that is fine. And um, the majority respond well because it mimics the sounds that are in the womb. Um, but Children slept for many years before the white noise industry took off about it in the last decade. So don't get too caught up. But for me, white noise and darkness would be my go to. And I would play those all throughout the night and keep a dark environment at night. So if I was out and about um, in the nap time, you can just bring a portable white noise machine with you or get an app on your phone um, and recreate the white noise. Um, and you can get little different things that are safe that go over a buggy or a pram to make it a dark environment or say someone was at granny's or a family member's and um, a real top tip if you need a room blacked out and you don't have stick on black blackout blinds and um, is bring a little tin tin foil keep it in your baby bag wet a window and put the tin foil on it will stick and you have an instant black blind blackout blind so um it will make your life, your child's life a little bit easier if they've got the same environment, but that environment can travel with them. So dark, white noise, wherever you can. If your child falls asleep because they're out, um, you know, you've gone for a walk in the park and they've happened to fall asleep. If they've fallen asleep about those things, then fine. Don't, don't get too concerned about that. But these are just tips if it makes your life easier. Anything, any tips to help, you know, I think are always well appreciated, aren't they? Whenever you're desperate, you're just trying to get some sleep in and you're trying to you're trying to improve their sleep, not only for, for them, but for the whole family. Staying with the subject <laughs> of nap season, whenever you put them down, should you be waking them up after a certain amount of time? Lots of people are scared that they'll go into what people talk about as a, as a deep sleep or their nighttime sleep. You know, should we be getting them up after a particular time? Should we be, you know, limiting that that little nap? So as individuals, um, most babies and toddlers have a sleep quota that they can meet um, within a 24-hour period. So for newborn babies, that might be as much as 18 hours. For to some toddlers on the lower sleep end, it might be as much as 11. So if we have a toddler, Sai, who only needs... Um, 11 hour sleep per 24 hour period. Now they'd be a, a lower sleep. If you allow that child to sleep for four hours during the day, 
they've only got seven hours left in the evening. So um, that could start promoting late nights and early morning waking. So in those instances, I would be having a look um, to see if a child seems to be over or under tired by bedtime. In the little newborn age, um, they tend to need a lot more sleep. So maybe up to 18 hours. So you've got, I know it doesn't feel if anyone's got a newborn baby um, and is listening to this, I know it mightn't feel like 18 hours. The the reason it doesn't feel like that is because they're not consolidated. Um, little newborns find it difficult to have their days and nights the right way around. Um, and there's things that we can do to help them. So I actually limit um, newborn naps at two hours a time, but be, would be offering them every hour. Um, so it just means that it helps them differentiate their night sleep from their day sleep um, and with older children as well. So, you know, in the nine month bracket, if you've got a child who has 15 hours sleep, um, I would be aiming that the naps would be around three hours total in the day. So it might be that one was two hours, one was one hour. But if they'd already had two hours in the morning, I probably wouldn't have them have another two hour nap. And um, because it would only leave you with less hours, particularly if you have a child who's a low sleep. So you could have two nine monthers. One needs 12 hours sleep per 24 hour period. One needs 15. Um, so the 15 hour could do three hours and still sleep seven to seven. The child who only needs 12, you know, maybe can only sleep 10 hours at night and we might need to limit their two naps to an hour each. Um, but there's little clues that I would look for to try and work out what a, a child's sleep quota is and that would help me determine um, the nap time. But um, as a general rule, after five o'clock, um, if a child's over six months, when five o'clock hits after six months, I tend to get them up because... Um, we start stealing from night sleep at that stage. Um, and I always would have a bedtime of between 6 and 8 p.m. for most children. Um, and that is because there is a natural peak of the sleepy hormone melatonin, which is released in most children between 6 and 8 p.m. If you miss that, um, you will find it more difficult for a child to go back. Now, there are some individual children that actually their melatonin is released earlier or later than that. We have to adapt, but the majority would be 6 to 8. So if a baby was only waking from a nap at half five, they wouldn't be tired enough for us to get them into their night's sleep to take advantage of that melatonin peak. So um, I would always be waking the child um, at that stage. Um, obviously for a toddler, if they were asleep at, um, you know, slept four to five, they need a lot more time to build up their sleep pressure. So depending on the age, I would have slightly different recommendations. And I call them recommendations because they aren't rules. They're recommendations of what can help and um, sometimes um, families will say to me well my child sleeps to six o'clock and still goes to bed at eight there's no need to change anything if a nap schedule works for your family we'll be back in just a minute after this short message from the parent line team parent line ni is a free confidential service offering advice support and guidance on any parenting matter if you would like some support with any of the issues raised in today's podcast or any other parenting issue, please call the Parentline team today on free phone 0808 8020 400 or check out our Facebook page for more information. Now, on with the show. You talked about sleep pressure there. What's sleep pressure? So every time we are awake, a chemical rises in our body called sleep pressure. Every time that we go to sleep, the sleep pressure 
is reduced. So basically, it just goes right throughout. Every time you're awake, it's rising. Every time you're asleep, it goes down. It goes up and down. And I always think of it as a bit like fuel going into a petrol tank. And it's our brain's way of working out how tired we are. It monitors the sleep pressure. So any parents listening who are caffeine drinkers, caffeine actually blocks the receptors to let us pick up on how much sleep pressure um, we have. That's why you temporarily don't feel tired. So sleep pressure is vital and it's why we have naps because if a sleep pressure gets too high, that's when our body releases more of the wake hormones to keep us awake. So if a child is overtired, you would think, brilliant, they've missed a nap, they're going to sleep great tonight. And then it takes ages to get them down because the body's actually responded to the sleep pressure by sending out wake hormones. When a child goes to sleep, if their sleep pressure was too high when they did this, the brain starts trying to clean the sleep pressure. And it actually causes more frequent night wakings and early rising. So um, people are sometimes surprised. Say their child's going to bed at nine, they're waking up at five. And I say, we have to move bedtime earlier. They're thinking, well, we were going later because we thought we could shift the whole system. But actually, it's because the sleep pressure has been high. There's a few clues children or adults can look for in their children. So over about the age of six months of supplies, um, if a child's sleep pressure is high at bedtime, children will either fall asleep very quickly or it will take them over 20 minutes. If their sleep pressure is too high at nap time, they, the child will probably cry falling to sleep and wake up after about half an hour crying. That would be a sign sleep pressure is too high. If sleep pressure is too low, it would mean basically a child's not tired enough to go to sleep. So when you put that same child down for sleep, they will probably laugh, practice their skills, whether it's crawling, walking, talking, have a little mini party with themselves. They may still wake up after half an hour, but they wake up in good form. And in the evening, children with low pressure tend to take a long time to fall asleep. So we're looking around um, 10, 20 minutes um, for a child to fall asleep. If it's outside of that range, it can usually give us a little clue of how much sleep pressure um, a child has built up and that can help us with the scheduling and where to place their naps. That makes it so easy to understand now, you know, like it, that really does help you sort of comprehend why they can be up and bouncing at certain, you know, certain times whenever you're looking at them thinking, how are you not naggered after the day that you've just had, you know, or, or that you've missed your nap? Why are you not going to sleep straight away? I've never heard that explained before. Thank you for that. Um, talking about naps, uh, you think I'm obsessed yeah. with naps. I would quite like to have feature more of them in my own day to day existence. But talking about naps, when do you know that your child has reached the end of, of needing those naps? When should you be doing away with them, you know, in order to help them maybe sleep through the night a bit better? So there's quite a lot of um, disparity between individual children. So there's some 22 months out there no longer need a nap. And um, there are some four year olds out there still need a nap every day. There are some of us, I'm in my thirties and can quite do with an app on the odd, <laughs> um, occasion. So, um, usually some signs, I usually start bringing it down before I take it away altogether. So some signs would be a child who's maybe been sleeping well and starts messing around at bedtime. So bedtime used to maybe take. 15, 20 minutes and it now starts taking an hour, I'd start thinking, hmm, instead of a two and a half hour nap, let's try a two hour nap. Um, early morning wakes is another indicator because um, it would suggest that um, a child's just met their quota. We're, we're meeting it. Um, as we um, go on in life, 
um, our ability to manage sleep pressure decreases. And this is why we need so many naps in the day because babies find it difficult to work through sleep pressure um, and we need less as we grow older. So their ability to stay awake basically increases. So once bedtime starts becoming a bit of an issue, I would decrease it gradual. So say it's been a two and a half hour nap, try two hours for a little while, try an hour and a half, try an hour, try 45 minutes. Then um, you can get a good little idea if you're going too fast because you have a really difficult afternoon. When I'm reducing the naps, I tend to bring bedtime a bit earlier, um, particularly when the nap goes, because say you've been having a child that naps, they wake at seven and they've been napping at 12 to two and back to bed at seven. Those children have been awake for five hours at a time. To suddenly expect them to go 12 hours is a massive jump. So we need to bring bedtime earlier, temporarily. And I always offer quiet time for about a year after the nap goes. So by quiet time, some children will sit in their bed or they're caught and read books. In my experience, the majority won't do that. Um, so we have to bring quiet time to them. So, you know, maybe making a little den downstairs and putting a blanket over, you know, a dining room table and putting cushions under, making a little campsite, making it fun for them, just anything that can make them relax. Um, and different parents will be able to clue into different ways their child does that. But just a wee bit of an hour downtime just to help them in that initial stage can really help as well. So is there any way at all then that you can kind of jig that routine or jig the sleeping hours that help you have a slightly later lie-in? I mean, there are so many parents out there who are well used to seeing sort of 5.30, quarter to six on the, on the, on the alarm, you know, clock and thinking, no, no, I don't want to get up at this stage. Is there any way that we can, we can rejig their little sleeping patterns so that they'll lie in a bit longer? So I believe Anything after six, you're doing well with toddlers and young children, which I know is very early. And I think part of the reason we have difficulty with this is that us living the way that we do is very new within um, human culture. We used to live as an extended family. So um, there would have been people of all ages under the same roof. We now have ourselves a much smaller support and family units. So um, as you know, if you're in the kind of parenting age, um, a lot of us, our deepest sleep is usually between one and five um, a.m. Our sleep needs change as we develop. Um, slightly older generation actually would have a desire to wake slightly earlier. And teenagers, um, their melatonin comes in slightly later. So their deepest sleep is often between like 4 and 8 p.m., which is why they find it difficult to get up in the morning. And it's all to do with our hormones and our sleep hormones change as we develop. The reason sleep, I think, is so difficult is because babies are awake when it's still we're still kind of coming out of our restorative sleep um, and historically there was maybe teenagers to help in the evenings and um, you know older family members who were naturally waking early to help in those early days now as parents we're actually trying to meet all the needs 24 hours so that is um exhausting Anything over six, um, seven, you're doing well. And this is just because of the way the majority of, of children's hormonal sleep drives work um, and why children find it so difficult when the clocks change. So anything over six, you're doing OK. If you're getting to seven, you're doing really well. And I think your view as a parent changes. You know, you wake up a quarter to seven and I think a lion to die and anything before six o'clock you know, half five, there's usually something that we can do to help that. And that would usually mean 
check in the child's bedtime. So we don't want them to be over or under tired checking their child's schedule. We don't want them either being overtired in the day and then waking up or that they've used up too much sleep in the day and we can wake it up. So there's definitely things we can do. Also just keeping out environmental factors such as keeping the room dark and particularly when it's spring or summer and lights coming in and, you know, checking that there's nothing that could be waking them. Is is the room getting too cold or too warm during those times? They all um, come into play. But it's also worth knowing there's a small percent of people who are genetically programmed to wake up early and, um, if that is the case, there's usually another family member um, that you can tell in adulthood. It's very hard to tell with children if they're naturally um, early birds or night owls. Um, but if there's another close family member who would naturally wake early, despite whatever it is that they're doing that day, there is a chance that you could have a genetic early riser and they are much harder to get into a slightly later rhythm. Um, and it's just down to their genetic makeup. And there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. Bar, make sure you always have a cup of tea and possibly a chocolate biscuit to comfort you at that time in the morning. <laughs> That's it. If, um, if you're the parent they inherited that from, you tend to not find it too difficult. Where the difficulties arise is when we have a, a naturally genetic night oil, we call them. So a parent who naturally doesn't go to sleep to one, two in the morning and their child naturally wakes up at half five. That's tough. If you have a genetic early bird parent who naturally wants to go to bed at half nine, it's perfectly fine to wake up at half five. I don't tend to see those parents. So people who come to me is when there's a bit of a disparity between the adult sleep and the child sleep. And that's a real thing because you could have two children sleep the exact same. And for one family, it's unsustainable. And for one family, it's not. And that is nothing to do with the, the parents' parenting style, values, ability. It's because we might have a parent who genuinely has got greater sleep needs than another parent um, or that their that their actual individual sleep needs are genetically slightly out from their child. So um when we're back at baby groups and people are comparing how many hours sleep everyone has, just because someone looks very fresh faced, it could just be that they need less sleep than you do. It has nothing to do with um parenting ability. It comes down to our genetic need for sleep, which differs between individuals and that's babies as well as adults. So if you did have two parents and one of whom, you know, coped better or, or worse with those kind of hours, given that we are, you know, this is a 24-7 job, is it okay then to split the the putting them to sleep sort of job? Or is it better to have a consistent parent, like either mom or dad or whoever's at home being the one to put your child to sleep? Does that affect them in terms of how fast they go over, how deeply they sleep, all those kind of things? And um, we can definitely support a child to um, accept the sleep environment from either parent. Now, this comes down to parenting style as well, because there's some people out there who would breastfeed to sleep, and that is very important for them to do that, and that they want to breastfeed to sleep and also between sleep cycles during the night. Obviously, that would mean that um, the female, um, there would only really often be one person that can do that. Um, so in those instances, it would be very much parental choice. And perhaps, um, the second parent might have a different role within, you know, maybe does a bit of massage or reads the bedtime story or something like that. Um, in other instances, it might be that 
that parents choose for them to to divide the um, support to sleep, if you like, and that's absolutely fine. What I do find works best is that if a family member is putting a child to sleep, that you give them the opportunity to help support them all the way to sleep. So, you know, if, um, you know, a dad or mum or whoever is rocking a child to sleep or trying to soothe, and we know that it might take half an hour, you know, with that parent, sometimes there's a wee bit of a natural and um, some children find it naturally easier with the person who does it most often. Sometimes the other parent can go in and say, just let me do it and I'm going to take over and it might be 20 minutes in and you can accidentally be making that parent feel that they don't have the skill to do it. And also the child thinks, oh, you know, dad can't put me to sleep where they can. Sometimes if you wanted to have the flexibility, you have to take a night or two just to kind of the the second parents stay there until they're asleep soothing how that parent wants to and so that the child goes oh actually both of them can help me to sleep now in the last year and when we've been in lockdown and it's been a lot easier that one parent was always there I think as that's coming out and we're going to have more social things and you know, different commitments. Some parents can start feeling that it's very restrictive and it's not always possible for them to be there. And um, in which case I would try a few weeks before to gradually bring that other person in. And, um, but it comes down, you know, if families out there and they're feeling perfectly content that there's one person that can settle to sleep, then stick with that by all means. But if it's becoming overwhelming, it is absolutely fine to help a child and um, learn to fall asleep with. Um, a second or even third adult. I wonder if there are a lot of families actually whose sleep patterns have gone up the wall since all of this sort of COVID-19 stuff, uh, you know, confronted us. Because I know certainly in my family, we've had to try to really retrain my husband and I, as well as the kids and especially my five-year-old back into normal sleeping patterns because we just had got out of, of all of our sort of normal routines and I'm I'm thinking that that's probably the case for a lot of families. Absolutely so our routines have gone because we didn't have to get up you know maybe as early as you did so people would think oh just we'll let the child stay up and there'd also be in some instances that maybe children were staying in their pajamas quite late so it was no longer sleepy cue being in a pajamas because you might be in it till lunchtime because why not and our diets have changed our exercise changed children were getting less fresh air um, it's particularly difficult for children whose personality like sensory activity. So um, we kind of can fall into two groups of sensory personality. Some of us um, are what you call sensory seeking and we actually soothe in a high sensory environment. So they'd be your children who love soft play, love trampolining, love messy play, love jumping in puddles and um, love the birthday parties. Um, and they actually soothe in a high sensory environment. And of course, high sensory environments were very hard to get in the last year because there were no birthday parties. There was no soft play. There was no school. We were maybe keeping our children out of supermarkets so they weren't hearing crowds or beeps and noises. And actually, at the end of the day, their sensory needs weren't met. So they were having to meet them in a bedtime, which means a lot of tossing and turning and, you know, kicking and heads and all the rest. And um, were children who are sensory avoiders, they actually soothe in a much quieter atmosphere. They hate all of those things and um, they like a nice, still, peaceful life. And bed is actually a lot easier for them because when they get in, it's nice and quiet and dark and just how they like it. So they might have actually thrived sleep wise in the last year because 
everything was so peaceful. They might have had a wee bit more predictability in their routine that if they were going, you know, to school and then day nursery and then grannies and parties and Saturdays. Um, so it does depend. And there are those children who like um, high activity and high sensory experiences. They are going to have had a more difficult year and are probably now finding things a little bit easier. Where on the other hand, the children who were enjoying the, the quieter life, if you like, are now maybe going to struggle um, as those sensory experiences start picking up again. So very much depends. But either way, um, there's some new research coming through about COVID impacting um sleep um, and I think the sleep consultants we're really seeing that as well and I have to ask you before I let you go today purely for my own personal reasons is there an age where it's too late to try and get your child into a good sleeping pattern because I confess I have a five-year-old who still it's hit and miss whether she'll go to sleep at a particular time stay asleep get up in the middle of the night she's just a, a terrible sleeper no, um, there's always different things that we can do um, in our environment to promote sleep. Even as adults, you know, there's adults out there that find um, sleep a bit more tricky than other adults. Um, and some people sleep is just harder than it is for other people. Um, the one, if I could give anyone one tip, it would be just be aware of electronics. So children are actually sleeping an hour less now than they were a century ago. Um, and it's because our eyes actually pick up if it's darker light to tell us whether to promote the wake or sleep hormones. Now we are on laptops, smartphones, our lights turn on. We're no longer um, ran by the day and the night, if you like. We can create our own day and night, and that can be whenever we want. Um, so something that is greatly affecting us all as a society, adults included, would be that we're actually controlling whether our environment is day or night and we can make it either at any stage. We can put a blackout blind on in the middle of the day and we can switch on the lights or the television at two o'clock. Um, so if anyone's thinking what would be a very good tip, I try to avoid um, electronics, blue lights. So phones, televisions, etc. within that hour, hour and a half of bedtime. You know, I'm not saying no television because you know, it's a really good parenting tool and there's a lot you can learn from that as well. And um, but the children, their eyes proportionately are bigger in their body than our eyes as adults. So they're more affected by this artificial light. Um, and it seems to be that seems to be one of the main reasons that as a society, not as individuals, that um, sleep is, is even more difficult for us than it maybe was 100 years ago. <laughs> And if anybody's really desperate, if they're trying to, I don't know, just find any tips, any advice that's going to help them long term, then where would you send them? What would you say? Um, well, they're always welcome over to my um, social media. I'm Saddle Pedals. Um, I do a little free question once a week. So um, I do limit to the first 10, just a balanced life. So first 10 questions on my stories, I will answer um, back on the stories anonymously and we've got some tips and um, if it's to do with sleep safety I always recommend the Lullaby Trust um, who are a charity dedicated to the safe sleep of um, infants and children so that's a really good site um, or I'm Settle Petals on social media and I supply one-to-one um, workshops and um, little tips on there and also have a range of online resources. Brilliant. Thank you so much for taking the time out to have a chat with me today. Susan Wallace, Settled Petals, uh, own sleep consultant specialist. Thank you very much for taking the time to have a chat with me. Thank you for having me.